Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. No, actually, they are quite strange, the people that you get going to the south of Spain in those circumstances, though. Before this job, I was a reporter in Spain, and I once interviewed someone who was carrying a one-woman protest outside a Lidl because she'd been robbed at it three times in a row. She just kept leaving her car open. For our annual review, I've done an interview with Benny Higgins, the former CEO of Tesco Bank, who advised the Scottish government on the setting up of the Scottish National Investment Bank and was the chair of the advisory group in economic recovery. And they recently reported, basically, with a blueprint um, for how our economy should open up following the pandemic. Well, I think it's quite nice, actually, because people often talk about how politicians are removed from policy, you know, whereas this is a man living the real-life consequences of the UK government's actions. Although, I don't know, maybe you would take it a bit personally if you're Grant Chaps. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That is a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I've got quite a a clear bad week this week, I think. Yeah. Um, It's a bad week for Spanish holidaymakers from the UK. Um, Yeah. that, That comes after, well, the UK lifted quarantine rules quite briefly for a few days, which allowed people to go on holiday to Spain, thinking they could just come back quite easily. They get there and they find out quarantine rules have been reintroduced while they were away. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, really bad week for Grant Chaps because <laughs> as the transport secretary, he flew out to Spain before the rules changed and um, obviously arrived home to a, a welcome of a bank of TV cameras and uh, journalists who will no doubt follow him around and make sure that he absolutely sticks to the quarantine and doesn't do a Dominic Cummings. Well, I think it's quite nice, actually, because people often talk about how politicians are removed from policy, you know, whereas this is a man living the real life consequences of the UK government's actions. Well, I don't know, maybe you would take it a bit personally if you're Grant Chaps. Yeah, well, I think he, he, he did he did go on to talk about the fact that his family and his, his wife, uh, they all understood the importance of what had happened. So I presume that he will stay indoors. I mean, the other one yeah. that I thought was quite interesting... On a, I, perhaps a different scale, is Stephen McCabe, who's the Inverclyde council leader. Um, he tweeted a picture of his son who had flown out to Ibiza on a lad's holiday. Um, and he was pictured, his son was pictured arm in arm with a group of mates in, Ibiza, in a bar in Ibiza, um, along with the EastEnders actor, Dean Gaffney. Um, <laughs> bit of a boast going on until someone else replied with a news story that had appeared in the Daily Mail, I think a couple of weeks earlier, about said Dean Gaffney's fears that he had coronavirus. So um, I think Stephen McCabe then tweeted that there would be his son, he was getting the garage ready for his son's quarantine on his return. No, for sure. I'd lock him in. Um, I mean, in fairness to him, at least he's not transport secretary. You know, it could be worse. I know, I know uh, absolutely. Grant yeah, think... said afterwards um, that they, they had to act when they did, the UK government. Um, just to be clear, that's about the general policy, not the decision to strand him personally abroad. Yeah. I mean, do you know the bit that amazed me was the actual numbers um, of Brits that actually do go to Spain. So you can understand why the Spanish authorities are upset because the tourism industry will 
potentially collapse. But yeah. it, it really reminded me of a story some years ago of a British woman who claimed her holiday to Benidorm was ruined because her hotel <laughs> had too many Spaniards in it. And um, she actually wrote to the travel company, I think it was Thomas Cook at the time, uh, Frida Jackson was her name, saying that Spanish people should go somewhere else for their holidays. Um, yeah. And the whole thing had made her cry at the end of her two-week trip. She did actually get some some element of a refund. Um, but oh, I doubt I'm very much if all those Spanish holidaymakers are wanting to come here either. No, no. Que lastima, as they would say in Spanish. <laughs> Ole. Yeah. Um, it sort of reminds me of that bit in Braveheart where um, where the king says the problem with Scotland is there's too many Scots. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I kind of like that line a lot. Um, no, actually, they are quite strange, the people that you get going to the south of Spain in those circumstances, though. You know, like, I, I before this job, I was a reporter in Spain, and I once interviewed someone who was carrying a one-woman protest outside a Lidl um, because she'd been robbed at it three times in a row. She just kept leaving her car open. She, was, she would refuse to lock her car. She'd go yeah. into Lidl. Someone would nick some stuff out of her car, and she'd come back the next week and do the same thing. And her response, instead of just locking her car or going to a different shop, was to launch a one-woman protest. It was, it was quite sad, actually, because it was just me and her. I had to stand there for hours and watch. At one point, I wondered if she might get robbed, and that would at least add something to the story, but oh, sadly not. Brits abroad, eh? Yeah. Um, what about a good week? Good week. Um, good week. I've got quite a specific one here. It's a good week for an out-of-job actor of some kind. I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is um, the Prime Minister is advertising at the moment for an out-of-work actor or perhaps a journalist even, um, Liam. A, you know. a Hollywood online editor, perhaps. Yeah, it's someone of that ilk. young journalist. Who would be um, taking up a £100,000 a year job as the Prime Minister's basic stand-in at his daily press conferences. Mm. And this um, this news led a former colleague of ours, Tom Freeman, <laughs> who who was actually an actor and, a, a and is actor. now a spokesperson for the Green Party. But Tom tweeted that people wanted to hear from the Prime Minister, not from some out-of-work actor pretending to be him. Oh. Which, <laughs> I guess so that ruled Tom point. out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking about that, actually. I would get Lorraine Kelly to do it. Would you? Well, she tells it like it is. She's already apparently basically an actor. That was a, apparently part of her tax case. That's true. Yeah, and then yeah, the other true. one, if, if she can't do it, what about Jenny Godley? Oh, yeah. uh, At least they'd get a Scot really into the that. cabinet, wouldn't it? I think she'd really thrive in that role. Boris yeah. Johnson could tell her what to say. She could rework it in the same way she does with Nicola Sturgeon at the moment. Frank, get the door. You know, yeah. probably quite, I reckon viewing would soar. As long as people could understand her. She could also get Boris to get the soup pan on, which, uh, <laughs> given the other bit of news um, from Boris Johnson's team about obesity, is probably quite apt because good old-fashioned Scottish soup can't be more healthy. Um, so Boris Johnson has talked about the fact that he was overweight and that um, was a serious problem given that he got COVID. And we, we're now seeing lots of studies about the fact that obesity makes um, all the consequences of COVID much worse. Mm -hmm. So obviously his personal experience has led him to say that we now need a national obesity strategy. Um, but the bit I liked is that he, he talked about he said that he was five foot ten or thereabouts. Yeah, and you, you're quite suspicious of this, I understand. I, I took that <laughs> I've as stood next value. to I the man. Like he could be. And, uh, <laughs> I, I think there's been some news coverage where they've done diagrams of him next to different objects. Yeah, I mean, I, I have stood next to the man. He's certainly not five foot ten. I would say he's five foot eight at a push. But if you want, if you want to have the correct BMI, then you're probably best to 
to stretch yourself as well as the truth, I guess. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I guess the other news that's gone on this week is further restrictions being lifted um, mm -hmm. by Nicola yes. Sturgeon. I suppose that's good. That's sort of good for some people, bad for others. Um, yeah. Bad for gym bunnies. Although, I, to be honest, I was kind of surprised anyone thought gyms would reopen that soon because they are, you know, it's quite a difficult environment to to try and contain coronavirus. But well, other places, all those as well. men exhaling <laughs> with great drama. And you know how much I hate gyms. I went for six months and then just gave up. It was horrible. Oh yeah, I can't really imagine it. I mean, I can understand people that really like getting their exercise that way must find it really upsetting. But it, it seems extraordinary that a gym and a swimming pool, they're going to open at the same time as um, the First Minister is saying that non-essential offices can open up. I mean, yeah. you don't see people doing many press-ups in our office, do you? No, that's right. Well, I mean, you could start that if you wanted. You could introduce a sort of uh, fitness regime that we could do at lunchtime. Um, do you, think, you don't think that'd be quite dictatorial of me? I mean, I, I'd probably quit. <laughs> that, there's always advantages to these policies, Liam. Yeah, you've been trying to get rid of me for some time. <laughs> I, th I think the um, the interesting thing about that is clearly, particularly the Prime Minister is talking about the fact that they need to get people back into offices. There's a real recognition that business is being sorely, the economy is being sorely affected. Um, and I guess, you know, I see that from our point of view and trying to run the business. It is difficult and everything is not the same when everybody's working remotely. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, for this podcast, uh, but actually for our annual review, which we're putting, will be published in the middle of August, I've done an interview with Benny Higgins, mm -hmm. the former CEO of Tesco Bank, who advised the Scottish government on the setting up of the Scottish National Investment Bank and was the chair of the advisory group in economic recovery. Uh -huh. And they recently reported basically with a blueprint um, for how our economy should open up following the pandemic um, and I think one of the it's a really interesting he's a really interesting guy for mm. a start he grew up in um, Tory Glen which was uh, when he grew up there in the 80s pretty awful area and he grew up in the circus which was um, even worse mm. uh, first in his family to go to university and became basically one of our most recognized bankers uh, actually one of the questions I did put to him was, it's amazing that at an SNP conference nowadays, you say the word banker and you're, you're instantly guaranteed a lot of jeering and booing. Mm. And now we have one of our most recognized bankers creating, being the architect for our economic recovery. Yeah, but, there's a lot of pressure on him, isn't there? I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, not going to be easy coming out of this. No, and, and and he didn't underestimate, doesn't underestimate that. But he's, what I was interested in was he talked about how his background has directed his thinking around closing the equality gap. And, he, and he's put a real emphasis in the report that the group have put together on young people affected mm. by the pandemic and what their futures hold, basically the importance of education and um and how we don't lose another generation. So, well, that's the thing. There, there is an opportunity here, isn't there? You know, yeah. you, you can see the same with environmental groups, with people that are pushing um, ideas, you know, trying to move away from GDP as a measure and towards more of a well-being economy. Yeah. I, suppose, I think Nicola Sturgeon said that as well. This is an opportunity to build something new as much as it is to try and recover what was. Yeah, and I think from his point of view, he doesn't want anybody to underestimate the challenge that we have ahead of us, really. Mm -hmm. So we'll hear some of that now, I think. Excellent. Um, you know, I've got a 20-year-old 
um, St Andrews doing maths, and you know she's what what is the next few years? So she's got another couple of years, yeah. and then she'll be in the job market. What do we want that job market to look like? And then and then you've, and, and actually, if we're not careful, it goes all way all but way back into the, the, the teenage years, the learning loss, the job market impact. And yeah. They don't deserve it, you know. And and in these transitions, they are the group of people that are most vulnerable. Yeah. So we've, we've just got to, we've, there are no easy choices and I think the choice we've got to make is to make sure that we don't go for austerity but that we invest wisely and that we accept that we're going to have to carry debt forward in the world for a long time. And how do you teach that group, and we can talk about it later, I'll tell you about mine as well, but that they can still, they can be ambitious, they can still reach for things, even though at the moment it's looking pretty dismal. Yeah, I think we've got, I think, I think we've got, I think ambition is, is what we've got to make sure that they don't lose. Um, we've got to make sure that they realise that being, ed get, getting education, getting training does matter, that they, you know, that they will serve their own being well yeah. by, by, by having ambition, proper ambition. And I think we've just, you know, what we don't want to do, but we've, we've also got to do the things, Mandy, that make sure that they don't, we don't say be ambitious and then we don't give them an opportunity to be so. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's hard to be ambitious if there are no jobs, it's hard to be ambitious if, ambitious if there isn't enough investment. Um, the university sector is facing existential threat, you know, from yeah. foreign students not um, being here. Um, and so, you know, these are, I, I think that the, the one thing I would say is, let's not even for a moment pretend that in ensuring that these young people have ambition, that they get the opportunity to make their ambition real, is not going to be easy for us. Yeah. So we've got, these are all, every choice is going to be a hard choice. And do you think they'll be able to live that out in Scotland? Um, I hope they can, yeah. yeah. You know, I think, but it's, but we've got to be focused on what matters most. You know, we've got to be clear that education is an important part of what's going to make them get to the other side. Education is an important part of what Scotland will stand for. It's so, it's become more important. Mm -hmm. Everything that we could have said before this crisis has become more important. Yeah. I mean, when you look back, because it, it's interesting, I was thinking about the capital, all the different ideas of capital that you've mentioned, and there's yeah. also wasted capital, yeah. which is kind of when you look back on peers growing up in mm. Tory Glen, the world was, it was wasted. There were people that were never going to have a chance, that didn't get a chance, and that ended up doing nothing. Yeah, but <coughs> it's funny because I had a company talk to you. I knew you were going to talk to me a bit about my, you know, my early life yeah. and my background and who I, I am, I suppose. And it did make me reflect a bit on it. And I think that you know there was what, what, what was it that perhaps gave me a chance to not go down that path. Mm -hmm. And I think there are there are there are there's two types two, two types of luck. I think there's the luck that just lands on your lap. You know, you had nothing to do with it. There it yeah. was. And then there's a the luck that actually, if you have, if you think about it, it was lucky and lucky's good, but you made your luck. Yeah. There was things you did to generate. You took that advantage luck. of. Right. The and, and you got lucky. Yeah. But it wasn't luck that landed in your lap. And the first thing about um, anybody. And in my case, I'll, I'll speak for me, but mm -hmm. it's true of anybody. Is the first luck that lands in your lap, if you're so, if you are that person, is having loving parents yeah. that care about you. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't propel you in any particular direction. 
but it, 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 it takes away a lot of the risk that people who don't get that. So have. you had that? So I had that. So, you know, and it, my father went to the same school as me. I always remember when I, I went for an interview as a young actuary, and um, it was, I was down in London, just around the corner from the Ritz, and somebody, I was talking to somebody, and he was, he, he was talking about he and his father had gone to the same school, which was Eton or Winchester or something, and I said, well, I went to the same school as my father too, but it just turned out to be the local school, because yeah. my father hadn't drifted very far away, but he was expelled from the school that I went to when he was 14, yeah. and went to, he, was a, he went off to be a, a, a merchant seaman, which he did for a few years. And then what did he get expelled for? <coughs> hitting a teacher. And the year I went to the school, it was the teacher's last year at the school, and he was the assistant head. And I was just paranoid every day for that first year that he would recognise me because I looked to spit an image of my father. But I think I went to one of the biggest schools in Europe. It was the Holyrood, biggest Catholic school in Europe. So it was such a big school. It was a brilliant school. But it was such a big school that um, actually I don't think it's probably had a few people with the name Higgins passing through it since my dad. <coughs> and my dad went to see, and when he met he met my mum's brother, and then he, through him he met my mum, and you know that then. I turned up a few years later. Um, Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother, a yeah. younger brother. A younger so brother. I'm, I'm the oldest, not the elder. Because um, you know, um, when I interviewed Michael <coughs> Matheson, the transport secretary, yeah. and I said to him, uh, I was in, because we, we talked a lot about his upbringing and yeah. kind of what steered him away yeah. from, and he had a, I think, a cousin who was stabbed in school. Oh, there yeah, were yeah. lots of drugs and yeah. lots of stories of tragedies, which I'm sure. No, you, I, the only thing that's interesting is Michael's about younger than me and. Um, the, the drugs were, uh, drugs wasn't a big feature of my youth. Right. Uh, glue sniffing, weirdly, which you'd never hear about. That's right, that, it they, was, they were all yeah. running about with bags of glue. Yeah. Um, and obviously drink. Um, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. You know, there was gangs and there was stabbings and all that. And it's interesting, my, I, you know, I had loving parents, but my father had a pretty significant drink problem. Mm -hmm. So we lived with that. But what's quite interesting is, is that in that kind of community, the drink problem without violence seemed like you were doing okay. So my mother would actually say to people, oh no, I mean, he's never hit me, in a way that makes it sound like it's a good thing. Well, yeah. it is a good thing. Yeah. But actually, to, to even think that you're living in a world where one of the strengths of your family unit is there's no violence no in the violent. family. Yeah. <coughs> Albeit there was alcohol and there was yeah. the twistedness that comes with alcohol, yeah. but, but there was no violence yeah. in the household. Yeah. But, but the alcohol was, was, was an issue, you know. Um, but I watched a lot of my other friends. I mean, because it was there was there was a lot of kind of a lot of difficult environments, you know. Um, but but the next piece of luck that landed in my lap was going to Holyrood uh -huh. because it was an amazing school. The secondary school, not the yeah. parliament. Yeah, <laughs> the secondary school. Yeah, going to Holyrood Secondary in Glasgow was the next bit of luck that I couldn't, I had no influence on it, uh -huh. that landed in my lap. Yeah. And what, what happened at Holyrood is it was a school that had high standards of education and also had a high standards of behaviour and you know, kind of values. Yeah. And it was also a big football school and football was a big part of my yeah. life. So I spent my years from 13 to 17, 18 actually enjoying school, being proud to be part of a big school. Um, in a very mixed group because it was a school that attracted a lot of, you know, kind of classic you know, teachers' kids and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, interestingly enough, between me going to the school and my brother, three years younger, getting to the point where he was to go, they had carved Tory Glen out of the school. Mm -hmm. They were steadily 
getting the areas that were troublesome out of the school. I, when I was 13, in my first year at Holyrood, I had a guidance teacher, and she was probably 24. I don't, all I remember, it was a woman, right? Yeah. And I remember going to see her, and she asked me where I lived, and I said, Prospect Hill Circus, in the big double block. And she said, why do your parents not move? And as a 13-year-old, I was mortally wounded and offended by the thought that my parents were there because they had made a choice to stay there. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm kind of not blaming the teacher because she might have been a kid. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. she yeah. might have been. She yeah. might, for all I know, she's been fifty. Because I, you know, when you're a wee boy, everyone's an adult. Old. You know, yeah. uh, exactly. But you know, this notion that you know why would they stay there? But interestingly enough, three years later, nobody from that area goes to the school. Yeah. And actually, quite adversely affected my brother, I think, because he didn't get the the luck landing in his lap of a good school. And so having parents that care about you and getting a school that gives you a chance to be educated is I think part of the answer to your question about all these folk that go astray. Yeah. Now, you could have good parents that are loving you and you could go to a good school and still go off the rails because that probably happened to some of the, my, my peers. But all you can do is try and get the best chance and I think that is, at some point you've got to take responsibility for yourself but if you don't have the starting points of the, the family or the education environment, then the odds are really stacked mm. up against you. I mean, interestingly then, for both you and Michael Matheson, because Michael would say it was the school too, and the family, but he then, uh, there was a teacher at the school that took him mountaineering, and that yeah. was what, so, and you with sport. So yeah. with your brother, I mean, does your brother, has he fared okay? Yeah, so he's a bookie in Glasgow, right. you know, I, I, we, we don't spend, we don't, we've never fallen out, we don't spend a lot of time with each other, you know, yeah. but, but it's just the way our lives have gone. Yeah. He was a brilliant footballer, um, Alex Ferguson signed him for Aberdeen, right. um, he broke his leg when he was 16, um, and, you know, he wasn't at such a good school, um, and he broke his leg, and football was what he wanted to do, it's a pretty precarious thing at the best of times, a year out at that age, he never really got back. Um, but. But the football was very important as well for me in that, that, you know, I had a lot of personal relationships with teachers, you know. I remember being in Marks and Spencer about, oh, it must be 50 years ago. What was it? In Glasgow, we had like a blackboard. I'm not, in, I'm not in Glasgow very often <laughs> these days, but and I heard this voice say, um, hi, is that you, Benny Higgins? And I went, who are you? And he said, last time you met me, I had a perm and a moustache, and it was my maths teacher. <laughs> And I ended up taking away football. But the thing, the weird, th I, the weird thing was, well, in my case, seventies, yeah, yeah. But, And the weird thing is that you know, I, well, again, it's back to this thing about age. It turned out Tony was only like about six years older than me. So when I was seventeen, he was a young man, yeah. and I was a kid. Yeah. But when I met him, you know, all these years later, we were kind of not that much. I, in fact, I, used, I, I took him to a game at Hamden. And I had loads of people there, uh, my friends, and I said, this is my maths teacher. And everybody just said, no, you're joking. I said, no, he was. <laughs> it is funny with age, isn't it? I was yeah. saying that to my mum recently and thinking yeah. back to, actually, she was only, I you know. know. I think, I mean, my mum was 23 when she had me, you know, and, you know, when I look at like, my Amelia or Hannah Mary, who's 28, you know, and they still seem so young. You yeah, know. exactly. Yeah. And you want them to remain like that. Oh, um, so that relationship with your mum and dad, I mean, how important... Because uh, I'm, I'm even thinking back to Michael, because he was saying it was about the discipline, particularly from his mum, probably. But I, 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 would, I never really had this. It's one interesting because a couple of people have asked me over the years who maybe grew up kind of near me, 
this question about what made you because one of the things I have always wanted I've always taken personal pride in trying to succeed you know? yeah. so, but where I, does that come from? I, I don't really really know my mother would have rather when I was studying for my finals all my mother did was try and distract me and put me off studying uh-huh. by making me tea and tell me to stop studying and tell me to get more sleep tell me to stop working so hard you know, just, yeah. it was all about kind of now, whether she thought he's going to he's going to work hard anyway, so but it wasn't as thoughtful as that. This wasn't tactical. She was genuinely just thinking about. I don't think this is good for you, son. All this studying. Yeah, right. my granny said my brains weren't bad. <laughs> they, were, they, they might harm you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but but my dad had a slightly strange approach to it. He was kind of he just I think he lived a little bit vicariously through me, and he sort of assumed I would do well. There was an assumption, right? And he, but and so therefore. I think the thought of going in and telling them I'd failed would have been a pretty bad day, but there was never a sense of him telling me that. Even the day that I walked, I mean, when I walked in, after, I got a first in maths, and the day I walked in, he was reading the paper, and he, he, he didn't really even move the paper, he said, how did you get on? I said, I got a first, and he said, did anybody else? I said, no, I was the only one in a year in maths. And he went, oh, that's good. Paper back up? No, I had paper, just yeah. You know. Now was he proud? Of course he was, but yeah. he didn't know how to I went to Montreal when I was thirty for three years. And when I was in Montreal I was talking to people in Montreal about my relationship with my dad. Uh-huh. And they were going, see when you get home, you're gonna what will happen? And I said, I'll walk in and he'll just say hi as oh I've gone for the paper, you know. Uh-huh. And they said, Well why don't you you because know, I actually weirdly in Montreal, I'd always been quite a kind of tactile person, but in Montreal, because it was French Canadian, you know, I, I was, you know, everybody was hugging each other. You know, you're hugging the guys, you're hugging the mothers, the uh-huh. the babies. Every, you know, yeah. you just. And I always met this older Scottish woman, Betty Nicholl, and she said to me, "You'll have to watch when you get back, son." <laughs> you know, um, and then, but I was talking to somebody, and they said, "See when you go back, see the day you walk into the house to see your father, just go up and give him the biggest hug, and if he doesn't like it, too bad, right?" And I just thought, I'm going to do it. I drove. Weirdly, I don't know why, but I drove from Heathrow on a hired car up to Glasgow and I knocked the door and then I realised it was open, so I pushed it open and I walked in and he was at the other side of the room, which wasn't the big, that big room, but it was the other side of the room. And he went, hi. And I just, I, so I just thought, no, I can't, it's going to be like the bounty advert, you know, running to hug him. So I just, I just thought, if he'd been at the door, I would have done it because I'd promised everybody I was going to do it. But there, it just wasn't a part of who he was, you know, there was an awkwardness about all of that. Why but does that matter? What, why, well, does why does that matter? I mean, I, it's I, I just, interesting. I suppose, like I, I suppose I just, I, the person I've become is uh-huh. somebody who, I mean, this COVID thing's weird because uh-huh. I am a, you know, I hug my, pa- when I see one of my pals, yeah. you know, we hug each other, yeah. you know, we, uh, that's the way we live, you know, it's some, there's something about that kind of human embrace and I think, I think that's more natural. And I think it's more, it's, it's not natural not to. Well, it's so not Scottish. In the way. Well, it, well it's, it's not, you know. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's kind of weird in a way. But when you say that you were talking about your relationship with your dad when you were in Canada, obviously you've thought, you're thinking about uh, it. Well, of course. So yeah. what, what, what is it? What's bothered you about that? Well, I think we had, you know, one of the things about my, my dad and I is that I was these kind of blue-eyed boys as I was growing up, uh-huh. you know, and I, I, I was one of these kids, I did, I did well at school and I was doing well at football and, yeah. and, I, and I, in a sense I was in a world where, you know, there is so much more to life than that, right? Yeah. But actually in a working class environment in Glasgow to be 
pretty good at school and pretty good at football. Yeah. It's kind of, you've cornered the market uh, a wee bit, you know. Yeah, now, uh, it's a ridiculous thing because there's so much You more. could have just become a priest. You could have become, I could have, well, I, I could have done that. That, may, that would have been a very different path for me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, so, but, but actually, as I, as I became a young man and made, started to make my way in the business world, our relationship changed a bit. And he started to become quite, it was a combination of almost a wee bit jealous of me, but also feeling as though I'd been a wee bit of a traitor. You know, he talked to me, he, he almost, he, I remember once I did a, a, a business TV programme for Royal Bank, and my mum said to me, oh, your dad watched it and said, oh, he's become, he's, he's management now, he's, he's not one of us, something, weirdly, in that kind of yeah. class world where, you know, and it's quite funny at the moment, because, I mean, even seeing the last few weeks, obviously I've had a, a degree of publicity about working for the Scottish Government, yeah. so there's loads of people who criticised me for being on Nicholas team on the left, right? And I'm also the executive chairman of McClue, and we sold some land recently. Well, we sold some land and we're trying to sell some more land, and I've been attacked for people for being establishment. And it's just like, like I definitely can't be both. I'm actually neither, actually. Well, do you know who you are? I know exactly who I am, but I'm not defined by my job. Uh-huh. I'm defined by me, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't matter what job I get to do. I'm defined by who I am, you know. But I suppose the issue is when you, so when your parents aren't sure of that, because they don't understand the job, maybe. I see my my mum's different. She just does. My mum couldn't care less. All she cares about is all she phones me up and says, "Are you alright, son? Are you well?" Yeah. She's 83. She's still alive. My dad died 15 years, 16 years ago. Oh, my mum, mum. Whether I if I if I get fired from every job I've got tomorrow morning, my mother it would make no difference at all because she defines me by me. Cup of tea, sir. Aye, that's it. Have you, are you, are you eaten enough? You know, are you, you know, are you tired? Yeah. You look tired. And that's the bit, if I ever see her, and I've been, she's like, you look tired. I, when I was working on that project, I mean, because I've got quite a lot of other things uh-huh. to do, I worked probably the hardest I've ever worked in my life for about 10 weeks, because I had to keep everything I was doing going, and I had to get that project done. And when I spoke to her a couple of times, I wasn't talking about it to her, mention it. She was just like, I think you can need to do less, son. You sound tired. You know, I mean, I get that. that's all it is. Nothing else was matter, you know? Yeah. Um, that thing, though, from your dad, I mean, it's a bit that whole Scottish tall poppy thing. Yeah. You must have experienced that quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that I've, I've never yielded to pressure to be anything other than I am, and I think it's helped me travel. In a way, hasn't it been a positive? It's, it's been a it, well, it's been a positive, and I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> but it's resented by people. Mm-hmm. It's resented that I don't yield to being a typical corporate animal, you know, because I've never been that. All that psychobabble crap that people speak, you know, and 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 you know, and I've worked for a lot of big organisations, and there are so many people in them that it becomes like the Moonies, you know, and I I can't be that person. Isn't there though, I mean I, I take it that you, you can almost use it to your advantage, aren't it? Oh no, I think you can, but yeah. what, I'm, I, I, what I would say is, I, I would be careful about saying to a young person, you know, I mean I've learned a lot, I mean God I've done so many stupid things and I've done things badly, and I've hopefully learned my mistakes as I've gone through it, but I, I'd be wary of saying to somebody, you know, you know, watching me saying, I want to do it like you do it, because don't underestimate the danger involved. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to fall into line. You know, I left HBOS just before the financial crash. 
And when I went to see the search consultants in London, all of the, these posh people in the West End of London, when I was explaining why it was such a mess and why I had fallen out of them and why I had to leave, they all said to a person, I think you've got to think a bit about what you, what, about you, your role in this, and don't make it sound as though it was a problem. Maybe you're the problem. Now, they all said it in different ways, mm -hmm. but they were all telling me I was the problem. Mm -hmm. Six months later, now, you can call that luck as well, because if that hadn't happened six months later, I would have just drifted into being branded to be someone who didn't fit in. So in the end, you were right? Uh, in, the, in the end, well, I was right, when I, I was right at the time, uh -huh. but nobody believed me. But then they had no choice but to believe me. Yeah. Uh, but actually, you know, what's interesting too is that every job I've had in my life, not once has, the, as I said, the search world been involved. I've always been picked by people who see something in me that they want. Mm -hmm. George Matheson at mm -hmm. Royal Bank, Terry Leahy at Tesco, mm -hmm. the Duke of Clue. Mm -hmm. What do you think you see? I think they see somebody who is prepared to be themselves and will try and do the best for them and who's got good values. You know, I, 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 I value people, I try and do my best by people. I'll, I'll, I'll try and I'll do what I say I'll do and I'll, I'll try my very, very best and I've got personal pride in achieving it. Because that's what it's about at the end, the personal pride to get done what you said you'd do. But the formal search world, I don't fall into a, I don't fall naturally and easily into a category. Mm -hmm. And so they just find me a bit Tricky difficult. I, a bit difficult, you know. <laughs> I, I always remember one of the directors at Tesco, uh, I went to a cocktail do in London and uh, somebody was walking down the stairs and this director said, to the person that's walking downstairs, I'd like to introduce you to the difficult Mr Higgins. Right, and I, I looked at him and he said, no, it's a joke. He says, before I became a director, the search people who said you were going to interview me said, because he was a non-executive, but as a chief executive I was interviewing them, and the search guy had said, you're going to find them very difficult. And actually the guy didn't think it was difficult. I don't think people who are actually quite able, good people, decent people, find me difficult at all. Yeah. But it's, it's split with the world that I've lived in and people I've worked with. That there's a lot of people who I think would say they've loved every minute of working with me, and there's other for people who find me difficult. That's okay, isn't but it? That's perfectly okay by me, you know. Just going back to um, that thing, because I realise there's so much else we haven't talked about. No, no, no. But with you, with your dad, I mean, with your kids, what have you learned from your relationship with your dad and the way that you deal with your children? Um, I don't think I learned anything. In, this, in so far as I was trying to be different or the same. I mean, he, he, he was a big part of making me who I was, although my mum's father, my grandfather, was probably the big character, in, yeah. a, a very big character in my life, uh -huh. and he was the one that introduced me to books and literature and art in a sort of indirect way, and that's, that, that's been a big part of my life. Um, and I suppose I just I just want the best for my kids, you know. I mean, I, I listen after that. The thing is, see, I can have arguments with my children because I don't treat them as other. I treat them, I know they're my kids, so <coughs> they're my kids. But I will have proper arguments with them about proper subjects mm -hmm. if I don't think something's right. And I hope that in years to come, they see that as a strength that I'm prepared to, you know, have proper conversations about things. But the only thing I want for them. And this is maybe me being like my mum. Mm. I want them to be happy. Mm. That's more than the most important thing. I've got a 28-year-old daughter who's a primary teacher, and her husband's a primary teacher in Edinburgh. 
And when this whole COVID thing started, she immediately and so did her husband stepped forward and said, "I want to be a, um, I want to teach the essential workers kids." Yeah. I was very proud of her doing that. You know, putting her life at risk for doing what she wants to do. And we, you know, there was a time when I think she thought that maybe I'd be disappointed that she was doing a primary teacher's job because somehow it wasn't, you know, because she's very bright, very able. But that is a brilliant job. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I just, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm trying to do things differently or I'm trying to draw on that experience of being a, a child to be a parent, really. I, I suppose I am, we all do. But I just, I just want my kids to be happy and I want I, them to do things that make them happy. I suppose what I was meaning was your dad didn't express his pride necessarily to you, I, but you... Oh, I do. I, yeah. well, I do that with my friends as well. You know, yeah. I'm, I, I've got... I've got no side on that front, you know. I'm, I'm prepared to tell people when I'm proud of them, when I'm disappointed in them. That's the big, that's the worst thing anybody can say. I'm disappointed in you. Well, me, you know. Maybe on that. You don't need to shout at you, or you know. But I mean, just I'm disappointed. Mm. Somebody you care about. Oh. Yeah, staff never know. They know when I'm disappointed, <laughs> not angry. Aye. On the, on the um, before we go back to a couple of things around business and government. Um, the other thing that gets publicised all the time is you've been married five times. Exactly. Yeah. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, if you'd asked me when it, before I embarked on my life, um, what that, what, 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 if somebody had forecast this, I would have said it was kind of hideous. If somebody had even forecast it halfway through, I would have said it was hideous. But I can only really judge my life from where it is. You know, I got married to four people and divorced them before I met Sharon. I've got six children, two stepdaughters, and I've got a wife that is the perfect soulmate. She went to the same school as me 12 years later. Um, I went round the world looking for love and I found it in a way on my doorstep, out of the blue, when I'd given up actually on it. In fact, I, you know, I did tell my children that one thing that would never happen, ever, ever, was I'd get married again after I split up the last time. But I did. And it's been... That's the third bit of luck that landed in my lap. Because I don't think I made that happen. It just she appeared out of nowhere one day and continues when I was meeting Judy Wagner for breakfast. I was never in Edinburgh at this point, and I went there and I'd met Sharon a couple of times and did things, but I didn't really know her. And it turned out she just split up, and I said, "Well, we should catch up sometime." The rest is history. So I, I can't really explain how all that kind of unfolded, but I do know that I've got maybe I fall in love too easily, or maybe. I don't know, you know, lots of people, it's not like I've lived with lots of people and not been married, I just aren't married. You just end up married. I, I, I married every day I met, kind of thing, you know. Um, but I'm not saying that's right or wrong, or, I just, it happened. But I'm extremely happy with where I am, and I'm not embarrassed about it. Yeah. You know, it is what it is, mm. and um, it, it gives people something to talk about, I guess, but... Well, it's an interesting, when you sit and research, you go, oh, that's interesting, I'll need to go aye, back aye. and look at that. Aye, it's, it's funny, I think, you know, these days if you get married for a second time, it's absolutely nothing, that's just, yeah. that's now becoming almost par for the course, sadly, but yeah, it, is, yeah. it is. Getting married a third time when you're not that old is quite embarrassing and awkward. You know, when you get married for the fifth time, you know, you're beyond that, it's just a question of what choices you're making in your life about how you want to live. Yeah. But Chan's been, the, the three bits of luck that landed in my lap were having parents that cared about me, a school that was brilliant for me, and an environment where it really mattered for me, and me and Sharon. And everything else I think I kind of contributed to my life. 
mm-hmm. you know, so I, I didn't qualify as an actuary after two and a half years because I was lucky I did it because I worked hard. Mm-hmm. Um, did it serve me well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved from different places at different times. I left HBOS not knowing what I was going to do next. Um, but I did know Terry Leahy, and so therefore when I went to Tesco, it, w- it was luck, but it, it, I had contributed to my luck. And, you know, all the way yeah. through these things happened. Just going back to a bit that I, I meant to explore at the time, but the business mm. relationship that the Scottish Government has, and it clearly is not the way it used to be when it was under Alec. Yeah. What, what do you think they need to do about that? I think they just need to engage more. I, I, I actually think that the Scottish Government has got probably more willingness to talk to business than business knows. But it's the way that you communicate. Mm. I think Alec communicated in a very direct way with business. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that he, it's just the way he was, this way he does stuff. And I think when I talk to Nicola about it, I don't think she's got an unwillingness, but it's not her natural disposition. And I think what we've got to do is just move up the priority list. I think it's not about it not existing in our mind. I think I, I think it just has to be more overt than it is. And I think Alec was good at being yeah. overt when he needed to be. Well, know. so I remember, do you remember at the very beginning, actually, in 2007, Jim Mather and John Swinney went out and yeah, yeah. very purposefully Absolutely, did yeah. that charm offensive. Yeah, yeah I think that, that's right. And I think, you know, you can call it a charm offensive, but actually what it is, is about communicating. When I was doing the work on the bank, yeah. I went round the country doing breakfast all over the country, yeah. talking to people from all walks of life about why the bank, the Scottish National Investment Bank matters why we needed it, you know. Yeah. Um, call that what you like, but it's it's engagement and it's communication, and I think we just need to pivot in that direction. But I would also say this, business has to do better too. It, it takes two to tangle, you yeah. know, and it needs yeah. business. And I, I said this in my report, and I've said it, in, in, I've said it out loud a few times, one of the challenges we've got is that we've got trade bodies I don't think represent business that well. And so you've got a government that needs to talk more directly to business and engage more, and you've got trade bodies that don't necessarily represent it. It's a very bad starting point. But the good news is, it's not hard to fix. Okay, so now it's the time in the show for Mandy to do her regular rant of the week. These change in their intensity from week to week. Sometimes it's a rant, sometimes it's more of a kind of meandering journey through Mandy's imagination. Mandy, what have you got for us this week? <laughs> it's probably a meander through my Twitter feed, I think, this morning. Um, so today, newspapers and social media filled with the, the machinations of the SNP's candidate selection process for the 2021 parliament election. Okay. Um, and obviously, we're all a bit geeky in our office. Um, I would actually just like to stop and refute that entirely. I'm much more of a jock. <laughs> well, I'm, we love like all this stuff. <laughs> I, I don't think it, the general public is necessarily interested in the details or the ins and outs of how candidates get selected to stand for each party. But given the SNP um, has such hegemony over Scotland's governance, mm-hmm. people have become very interested. And there's the drama of we've got the deputy leader, the former deputy leader of the party, Angus Robertson, who mm-hmm. lost his seat um, in 2017 to the Tory Douglas Ross. He's formally announced that he he was standing for selection for the Edinburgh Central seat, which at the moment is held by Ruth Davidson, mm. who took that seat from the SNP's Marco Biaggi, who'd um, 
uh, resigned from that seat. Um, so that's interesting in itself that the former deputy mm. leader who that's lost his quite, seat. That's not really how it was reported, though, was it? That he's... No, it was reported as if, I mean, he Angus launched a campaign which sounded like he was the candidate that had been selected to stand for the SNP in that seat. And that isn't what that isn't the case. He's launched a campaign to stand for the selection. So it will still go to the members in that constituency to decide who gets to stand for them. But, you know, the contest hasn't even opened yet. Mm. Angus has put his name forward. Candidates haven't even been approved, as far as I understand, or gone through assessment because that was all suspended um, because of the pandemic. Um, Angus has also opened up for donations. So people are donating to a campaign to help him get selected to stand for the party and then potentially win the seat. But not only that, Joanna Cherry, who is an MP at the moment, an SNP MP at the moment, had already announced her intention to put her name forward for selection for that seat. So you've already got two quite big hitters um, in that potentially in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also being reported as if it's just uh, between those two. And well, it's being it's treated all... as almost a kind of proxy war, I isn't it? I was about it, to say or... that, yeah. yeah. Abs- a pro- kind of proxy war between uh, the gradualists, that would be Angus and Joanna, who um, would be seen as uh, wanting to get independence as soon as we can possibly get it. It's also seen as a proxy, as a pro-Salmon, pro-Sturgeon mm-hmm. uh, contest, and also a pro-GRA and versus gender critical feminists. I mean, it's it's all a bit silly, really. It's pretty um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some of it, I have to say for me, does smack a real sense of entitlement um, mm. and that people now see the SNP as a very credible career path. And that that actually was never, that was not the strength of the SNP of old. Yeah, um, do you think that changes the sort of candidates that you end up getting? You know, if you're a if you're a young person that's interested in politics, maybe towards the end of Labour's time, they were seen as, you know, a kind of surefire way to power. Yeah. And I think what people are seeing is perhaps um, a, a very a parallel between what's happening with the SNP right now and what happened with New Labour. Um, and that you can end up with career politicians. I mean, I guess what's interesting about both Angus and Joanna is that neither of those are. They both had careers in their own right. Mm. Um, But the fact that you get so much attention on what is a fairly um, specialist area of electoral interest Mm. is, is, I suppose, a mark of where we're at with the SNP right now. Yeah, this sort of infighting's become much, much more public. Yeah, um, well, also... social media. Yeah, and also today... Chris McAlini, who's a councillor in Greenock and Clyde, he announced that he was going to challenge the sitting SNP MSP, um, Stuart McMillan, for that seat. Now, again, that's it's not completely unheard of, but that used to be a real no-no within the SNP, that you just didn't do that. Um, you may remember there was quite a bitter contest in, ooh, I want to say 2017, I might be wrong, 2016. Mm. When um, Marco Biaggi, uh, sorry, Tony Giuliano, yeah. he challenged um, Colin Kerr. I'm uh, sorry, yeah. I'm, uh, Colin yeah, Kerr yeah. for that seat in Edinburgh. And um, Tony won, and the SNP lost the seat to Alex Cole Hamilton. So there might be some karma there, I don't know. Um, Marie Goujon, she also she challenged uh, sitting MSP um, Nigel Don. 
Mm. Um, and she won that seat and held it for the SNP. But it used to be something that just didn't really happen. Mm. So I think it shows you this kind of a new generation, a different generation. Rules are changing a little bit. Um, and a lot more members, really. I mean, after 2014, yeah. we've got a huge amount, a huge increase in the number of people that want to stand for the SNP, apart from anything else. Yeah. There's spots for them to stand. Yeah. And I suppose what's interesting about why all this has become a bit of a rant today is that there's a meeting of the NEC of the SNP. Um, kind of nobody particularly knows who's on that, unless you're a member, you won't see the minutes of the meeting. But various proposals have been put forward about how the selection contests should happen. And there seems to be a number of proposals that have been put forward that seem entirely designed to stop Joanna Cherry being selected or being yeah. able to stand, which is all a bit bizarre as well. I thought that was quite a strange one because I'd have thought she's one of the few candidates who actually probably wouldn't be particularly impeded by a, you know, a, a certain amount of money that you have, to, you have to raise first or whatever, because she would have a pretty easy job of doing a crowdfunder, I would have thought. Well, you'd have thought so, but I think it's just the principle behind the thing, Liam. It's all a bit um, odd. And and also some of the way this has been worded, um, whether it's true or not, it, it sounds as if... The, the, the date of a by-election, if should that be triggered, would be in the gift of the SNP, which it isn't. Mm. You know, so there are lots of rules that people do and don't understand, um, but it just seems a really odd thing to have captured an imagination, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, this section's normally one where it's kind of tenuously related to party politics, and then you say politicians have to act, you demand that they do something about it. I suppose in this circumstance, they really could do something about it. Yeah, they could. Um, or perhaps in this case, yet again, it shouldn't be the politicians that act, should, should act, it'll be the electorate that act. So the electorate must act. The electorate must act. <laughs> So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.